0: This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep, form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com.
1: Hi, Derek. Hi, Sean. Hi, Sam.
2: Hi, Derek. Yeah, we're
1: at RailsConf again. We're joined by Sam Saffron. Um, Boy, what's your intro? You work on Discourse. I work on Discourse. And several other things.
2: He yells about performance a lot. Yeah. I guess the intro would be, um, in a previous lifetime, I worked at Stack Overflow uh, with Jeff, and now I'm working with Jeff at Discourse, and it's a platform for uh, discussion. The, I guess idea is that we want to displace phpbb and make it go away so nobody has to use that that's a very noble goal (laughs) on behalf of the internet world thank you um and it's been going great we've had a lot of opportunities to speed up rails and make it work better for us uh one thing about discourse is that because we want it to be everywhere then we have to make sure that anybody can run it Mm -hmm. and that means that low Spect computers can run this software (laughs) right so that is why we spend a lot of time focusing on making it faster and making it consume less memory because that allows us to get discourse out everywhere sure the requirements were like 10 gigs of ram so it's
0: it's an ember app right i mean what are the challenges associated with making it run on low-end hardware i'm assuming that that's not just for for an intensive app like this i'm assuming that's not just something that
2: happens magically well, Ember itself doesn't, like, it doesn't add anything. It actually removes work from the server because often you're just doing, like, API calls, and these API calls don't need to do all of the rendering. I'm so sorry.
0: That, I'm, yeah, okay, I misunderstood. I thought yeah. you meant, like the, cl- like, the low-end machines were the client, not the low-end. No, no, deploys. the low-end deploys. Right, I forgot okay, you mentioned yeah, multi-deploy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, so, like, for example, you can deploy discourse quite uh, comfortably on uh, $10 a month Uh, digital ocean instance using our magical docker deploy that is the only supported way of (laughs) deploying discourse so yeah that's what i so actually for that and ember does tie in it does help us being an api app because that's another bunch of work that we don't need to do on the server which is great so i feel like i've come across so much of your stuff based on this performance
1: work that you're doing for Ruby, right? Yeah. I I use these tools and they're very helpful to me, but I feel like I'm very far away from being able to, like, do this work without your tooling. So how did you... (laughs) (laughs) I guess, like, was this just out of necessity or is this something you've always done? Were you doing this at Stack Overflow as well? Uh,
2: Yes, actually, um, Rack Mini Profiler was born out of a project in Stack Overflow that Mm -hmm. was uh, created by Jared, uh, who, who works there. And... That was born out of necessity of not having that tool in .NET. So um, there's actually a lot of history around profiling. Um, In a previous life I worked for a company called Altiris that got acquired by Symantec. And I was dealing with a lot of performance issues back then in .NET. So I wrote my own profiling tool which was closed source and we shipped with our product and then it just died eventually <laughs> and never came back again. And then I vowed that if I'm ever doing any of these things again, it's going to be open source. And that tool was absolutely awesome, but there was no way to use it anymore. Right. And then like I got to the website and I was, there's no good profiling tool out there. And then Mini Profiler was born, tried did all the work. I kind of was <laughs> saying, I need something like this, please. We need something like this. Um, pretty okay and it's um, adequate yeah it is adequate <laughs> adequate performance an adequate profiler yes
1: so what are the areas you're focusing on now like what are where have you been able to help make significant gains in rails performance lately 4.2 lately yeah 4.4.2 is counts as lately
0: well no that, that's what i mean i mean I mean, like the fact that 4.2 is not twice as slow as 4.1 i would say that's a yeah. pretty helpful that is pretty contribution <laughs>
2: Yeah, going forward, it's hard for me to think, you know, ah, yeah, I've got these things in the pipeline that I really, really want to do. But right. um, looking at the history of the last few years, there's been a lot of stuff. And I think the biggest thing that I feel really honored to have participated in was before we released one, we had like this little workforce with uh, me and Koichi and Aman, and we were just talking uh, about what kind of gaps uh, the actual, actually, MRI has that is making it hard for us to write all of this tooling. Mm-hmm. And that's when a lot of these APIs were born and added into MRI. And that was really amazing that we managed to land so many patches into MRI, and now, the, now it's paying off with all of the memory profiling that was absolutely impossible to do. Back in the day, now it's actually a possibility.
0: right. When was the API the C API that makes the sampling profile possible? Was that two one?
2: Yes, so a stack prof is. <laughs> Aman kept rebooting this. Like, if you look at the history of all of Aman's profilers, mm-hmm. it was like a new profiler every year that is slightly smarter and slightly using slightly better APIs. Right. And it was just evolving year after year after year. And StackProf is the last one in that iteration that is based on the APIs in One. Okay. So that was impossible to do without those new APIs. So whenever right. you, you hear people using, ah, oh, yeah, use StackProf. So, yeah, you're bound to use One and up. And that is thanks to that work that happened before we released two one okay and gave us the infrastructure to do that and that's cool right yeah.
0: and, then, and then for for the listeners the api that we're talking about was the ability to get the current uh the current full stack frame without performing any allocations that was the main yes thing was it missing,
2: was right? uh, it was a c-level api yeah that allows you to get um very efficiently gather stack traces and um gc information and whatnot yeah so and then in rails of course we shipped rc1 you
0: guys ran your benchmarks which that's the other that's another <laughs> you know examples of contributions right having
2: an app that we can easily benchmark against is always good and yeah that right. has been awesome and uh now going forward uh, the a lot of um I'm mentoring Alan, who's working on ruby bench at the moment mm-hmm. and um we're working pretty much every week I, I chat with him and we talk about what he's doing and he's a student he's got limited time but a lot more time free time than i have uh, and uh he's been working on this plugging away improving it making sure that all of our benchmarks are testing valid things <laughs> right <laughs> and uh, making sure that all of this runs um, ruby bench is a very interesting project in that it touches so many different things to be able to run a benchmarking project you need to know how to provision servers and run docker containers and mm. write the scripts and write the web so you you have to be this type of person who is comfortable to work on like a hundred different things and right tie them all together magically and release something right. so that's why it took us so long to actually get something out there that's live but now it's live and we're looking for help yeah. So if anybody wants to review the various benchmarks and submit new benchmarks or improve the web UI or improve the automation we'd love love to see that. So definitely I see a lot of that happening in the next, you know, 6 months hopefully we can help you guys at Rails have um, regular benchmarks run on every commit. I actually just
0: got a Ruby Bench issue uh, for a regression. <laughs> I mean, this one was just the the writes got slower in four point two, which we were talking about yesterday. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't really want to close and just go, "Yep, I know." Sorry, <laughs> I'm working on it. But uh, definitely, stuff like that's really helpful.
2: And and ideally, like you can, the closer we can catch it to when you're committing the code, the better it is, right? Yeah it's it's just tricky right because when you when you're when you're dealing with micro benchmarks
0: a lot of a lot of times the characteristics So, like, for example, creating a new model with zero attributes is slightly slower, but creating a a model and assigning attributes got slightly faster, and that was a direct movement of work from one place to another. And then it's just like, okay, so then we have to decide what is the most common case. And I figure the common case is we're going to give some attributes to the model at some point during its lifetime for more cases than not. So I
2: think, yeah, I think the important thing there, the take back, is probably to, like, contribute a little... Spec, uh, like a little like test to re-bench, so it, we can show that in a picture. Like, yeah, this went a little bit down, but this other one went way up, and this is a more common case.
1: Right, but that's just
0: the issue, yeah. right? Is then when people see one or the other in isolation, it can draw a very, a very different picture yeah, that doesn't necessarily give the entire. Yeah, picture. They still
1: need, you still need to do some, like, uh, what do they call it? Macro uh, benchmarks. Or you just need to, like, um, do some editorializing on top of the benchmarks, right? Like a little bit. Sure. Where you see yeah. like, okay, this these two went down, these three went up. Which ones are more likely? And then like, yeah, and then you need the like you said the macro benchmark on top. Yeah. Like, yeah, that does prove us out that this is something more.
0: And I think the the Rails benchmarks that are getting added have at least one that's just like a full app, right? A pretty simple. I think it's like a simple blog or something.
2: Yeah, I think I think at the moment we've been focusing on just active records, right? Okay, I'm fine with that. So let's, uh, I want to get that done first because I feel that like most of the performance issues that um, Rails developers have these days are all related to active record and active record overhead. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's just where, but you know what? Like any web app, whenever you look at it, it's all DB, DB stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at how long it took to render your page, 50% DB and that's normal. Mm-hmm. So, you need to like spend a lot of time there because that's where all of the time is going to be, and you want to ha- minimize the overhead between when you what the actual raw execution of SQL is to getting objects at the other end, right? I mean, you can
0: also kind of infer that Active Record would be where most of these these issues are going to live. Just if you run uh, WC-L on our code base, right? I think Rails as a whole is 270 something, and Active Record is 210 of those. Yeah, thousands that is. Uh, <laughs> active Record is 210 it's lines of code. Micro, it's now a micro awesome. framework. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh man, I wish. But yeah, it's just like when it's that big of a percentage of our code base,
2: and you can't change a lot of things, right? You're married to certain implementations and hacks and methods that can't really ever change. Or <laughs> Yeah, I
0: mean, we, we, we do pride ourselves on not, like, stagnating for backwards compatibility reasons. Um, like, we're, not, we're never going to have a MySQL real escape string type of deal. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you just have to weigh, like, this is going to cause somebody a lot of pain if I change or remove this. Is that worth the gains and... It's always just a case-by-case thing, right? If, it, if there is a case where it's like, if I could change this and it's going to be really painful for everybody, but it's
1: going to make Rails twice as fast across the board, yeah, I'll probably still get shot down.
2: But I'll
0: try.
1: <laughs> 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 so you, you mentioned Discourse Bench, which is like the benchmarks you have for Discourse, the whole full stack application, basically, That is right? correct. So do you think that's something that, like, did you guys invest time in that up front? Do you think that's yes. something all apps should do?
2: Maybe. That's, uh, no, the, it's, uh, it's a difficult question. All apps should be gathering performance metrics somehow. So definitely if you've got some production like app that you care about and it's making you money, you should definitely have some graph somewhere, be it Graphite or um, New Relic, New Relic or whatever yeah. it is that you do. You should have something. Skylight. There are... Uh, so... so uh, the, I there are... <laughs> So, definitely, whether you roll your own or use something, you should have something. And that is more important, I think, than um, spending the time on writing your macro benchmark. Okay. But the macro benchmark itself, if you're big enough and you can afford to invest the time, it's something you can chuck into CI, and then you can catch, like, certain macro regressions. Then you know the cause. Very quickly, close to the commits or the gem update that you did. Right. Right. And... um, you can catch some of that in production, right? Because you still got those graphs in production when you deploy the code, but it's a little bit further down the line and easier to forget. And also you can automate like if you had a macro benchmark, you can say, Yeah, if it goes more than twenty percent slower, then just revert the commit. That commit's not allowed. Mm-hmm. So you can actually stop this stuff from ever right. even getting into production. I mean that
0: requires a dedicated CI machine though, right? Yeah. Like that you couldn't do that with Travis. No. But you could fail the build and then as long as you don't merge failed builds. Well, no, but my point being like, there would be too much variance unless you had a known dedicated oh, machine yes, on Travis. yes.
2: yes. yes. You, okay. need, you need actual right. dedicated hardware to do that right? because yeah. on Travis you have no idea what's going to happen.
1: <laughs> what I find is like, when I look at new Relic stuff, because the only, the only time I ever look it up is like, I set it up, that's great, and I'm making sure it's recording data. I'm like, good, we got data. This is what I've got. Fantastic. And then somebody reports a problem a few months later where it's like we're seeing bad performance somewhere, so I dive into it. And at that point, I feel like it's almost too late because I don't know. Now I'm divorced from it. I don't know what the baseline is and I can look. And sometimes it is like, oh, we did this one thing and there's a huge jump. But oftentimes it's just like there's a little bit of a rise and then a little jump and then a little bit of a rise. And it's not one thing. It's just several small things.
2: Well, one thing is that that I've done like back from the stack of days is that uh, it's in my dna to always look at performance so if mini prof- if i'm using any app i'll always have mini profile enabled in production for me and then as i'm browsing around i see these little numbers that tell me you know this is how long it took to render this page on every little thing that i'm doing if i post a reply i'll see the number of how long it uh, took to do that so by having that kind of constant live feedback it's something that you will notice a lot earlier than just somebody coming to you because you're used to it right, and, and you know the
1: baseline because you're seeing it all. you're the time. seeing
2: it all the time right and then it seems weird when it's not acting like that and also it kind of entices you to say oh yeah this just took 400 milliseconds Well, this just took a second let's have a quick peek inside and see what did that oh i'm running 300 queries to render this right. page <laughs> that everybody's going to like because you can't really notice just with the timer in your head that a page is taking half a second versus 200 milliseconds it's one of those it's a subtle feeling like that when it became becomes really a lot faster you'll notice it and You go, oh wow something is really snappy about this but as it's happening and you're used to it you just get used to it right and right. you're not so so having a number really helps and yeah. knowing what number you can work down to helps
1: i don't think i've ever enabled it in production like i have it in development and sometimes you see like weird outliers in development and you're just like meh <laughs> server, re- server restarted, no big deal. Yeah. like something like that. You're like, ah, uh, that wasn't a big deal. The yeah. like, yeah. recompiled, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I hadn't thought about enabling it in production for like admin users or something like. Yeah, that.
2: Yeah, that's that's how it was designed. Like that was hmm. the, the first goal way. of it was to to use it in production, and uh, then development came more af- uh, after that, right. which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Okay, I think I'm gonna
1: have to try that.
0: Yeah. Sounds like a uh, good idea. Yeah. Well and then and you mentioned, you know, for example, one of the things that's pretty common is like, ooh, I ran three hundred queries to run this page. I think yeah. part of that's like Rails has certain APIs that can not necessarily encourage you to make poor performance choices, but like an N plus one queries bug just isn't a thing in most other in most other languages, oh
2: no no, no, n plus one is super common well, it okay it i'm talking
0: i 'm talking like you go back to the phP days though right and we 're just doing our sequ- our SQL queries and our markup like if you 're doing a query in a loop it 's a lot more obvious because you just you're executing well the query. abstraction
2: definitely is hiding stuff from you, but as a as an error like it's the general problem is that um, a lot of times we think imperatively about these problems when it 's actually all set theory right, right. so in a lot of developers don't have a good grasp of set theory and like why it's so much more efficient to do you know two queries on one page than 200. And it's uh, it's not only that it just happens in one chunk. It's that all of the little bits of work they add up to more work than just doing it in one right, right. Uh, in, in one go. So that's i think something that causes this across the board that people just you know they just want to put the loop the while loop and they don't want to write a query that will just you know go through the whole set of data and fix it up or move it or query it i actually feel Sorry. like once you know to look for
1: n plus one queries rails is a pretty good story on how to fix it like you do includes and then you tell it what you want to include right yeah. like that's not terrible it's something you have to know and something you have to be aware of but
0: there's a handful of places where
1: there actually isn't a solution. Right. And it gets hard. Like, I know at one point, I think, on, like, the f- the app that we worked on together, like, we had a couple of places where we were like, well, of course, when you have a post, you're always going to want its comments. So let's just put that in the default scope. And, like, yeah. when you oh, say yeah. let's we do anything that. in the default scope, it's like, oh, wait, this is this impacts way more than you think it impacts. Like, yeah. So don't use default scope, I guess. Uh, we, we have <laughs> default <laughs> scoping at <laughs> Discourse, which ah. is,
2: because... Um, we don't allow for any hard deletes all deletes yep. have to be soft deletes so whenever you're looking at a site you're always looking at uh, all of at the all table the minus acronyms, yeah. minus the deleted rows yep. and i can't really think of another structure Outside of default scopes, it allows you to do it right. very you simply. You'd so. always
1: have to have, like, an implicit scope that you call. Like, you couldn't just call, like, posts.all or anything like Yeah, that's like that. right. To, like, posts.notdeleted. Yeah. It
0: depends on how, you, uh, on how you define, like, simply. Because, I mean, the alternative would be something like Papertrail, right? Where you just store the diffs in a sep- in a completely separate table and then expose an interface to allow you to, like... Go find all of the deleted stuff. And that's m- certainly more complicated in terms of like it's not just a Boolean on your table. But yeah, but
2: I don't want to chuck the data out because then uh, I need to query it in the same format for admins that right. see deleted stuff. So right. I'm like right. kind of.
1: That's useful. Like I, we're admins on our discourse forum. It's useful to see like, oh, this got deleted. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and and certainly it'll be, it'd will be it be slower to query it. But that said, if it, something only ever appears on an admin page, that's a little bit less bad.
1: Yeah, I guess. But it doesn't. It appears, like, right in the regular UI, right?
2: Yeah. Oh. Well, never the, the thing that's, that's <laughs> interesting, like, if I was to solve this in SQL, I'd just create a view, right, without mm. the delete, and just always select from that view. So it would be kind of interesting if there was some kind of mechanism in Rails to say, yeah, if you're doing read, then go to this view well, by default, yeah. and then that could possibly avoid needing to do, like, some of that logic Elseway. you
0: can definitely use a view like uh, rails will just see it as a table this yeah. guy maintains a gem
1: for this yeah it's a little, it's in early stages but it lets you define views and like kind of get migration like behavior in that like it it you you define a view file and it mm-hmm. creates a migration for you and then it versions that view file a lot like you would version a migration with a date stamp i think it just does a numeric increase okay. or whatever so you don't you don't get in these situations where like you're constantly editing the same file or you have to like copy and paste the definition for the previous version of your view into your down migration, like trying to handle some of that. But there's still like resistance, I feel like. Whenever I'm like, we could use a view for this. People are like, well, does Rails do that well? I'm like, actually, yeah, it does. It does it really yeah. well.
0: And we could make it so that you could that you could, uh, specify a view specifically for read and, and then hit the table for write. So that should be announced for Rails 5. <laughs> no, that, like, that, that should be really trivial to add. Yeah,
2: because yeah, it would be a way to like switch out of needing to yeah. use default scopes which would be cool yeah
0: def table name for read def table name for write just have them default to table name by default no backwards because yeah in,
2: in write you don't really do that really right care now about we're done yeah it's great yeah. we're <laughs> done derek just did it we just committed it we pushed it yeah now we can do that well, cool excellent we're winning <laughs>
1: what are you excited about working on right now
2: what's what are you really looking into Really looking into? Uh, a lot of the DevOps stuff is stuff that's really close to me at the moment because we're accruing a lot of customers and we right. need to manage all of this. So uh, if I look at the last few weeks, I've spent a lot of time on um, getting uh, a Graphite, Grafana. Grafana is a very cool tool. Definitely put it in the show notes and okay. people should have a look at it. Uh, and that allows us to do graphing all the performance that's going on in our huge cluster of machines and we can see um, basically what the performance is on various pages, what memory is doing and so on and uh, I spent a lot of time kind of making this into something that anybody could install as a Docker container so anybody can get this now if they want to. So I I see a lot of stuff exciting around like that kind of ops DevOps stuff that involves writing source code to get the DevOps to happen which is new. The interesting thing about Discourse, right,
1: is so you have, you talked about like there's this Docker deployment thing that you support, mm-hmm. but then you also do a lot of hosting as well, right? Yes. That's kind of the preferred way, I imagine. Or it's easier for you, right, if everybody
2: hosts. Um, <laughs> it's easier and harder because we have a customer that we need to support. Right, and but keep then, happy, but. but like,
1: my question was going to be like, when you start shipping software to somebody else to deploy,
2: now you've got upgrade, like, things that you can't no, that's, control? No, I can. That's the reason that we're using Docker. That, okay. The same way that we deploy internally oh, right, yeah. is exactly the same way anybody deploys. Right. So, for me, um, one thing that started happening in the last year is, like, we, we I totally don't believe in having signatures in forums like where you write your post and then you have a signature telling you to do something <laughs> mm-hmm. but like the general troubleshooting issue of anybody has any kind of vague issue with discourse mm-hmm. i'm like yeah dot launch a rebuild app right so mm-hmm. just throw away your old container <laughs> that probably has got a few bugs and i didn't do properly and whatever and take in the new one and it fixes all the things and I bring in the latest code and uh, when you think about container, you know, you're not just thinking about the Rails code. It's how Nginx is con- configured. Exactly. It's how, like, it's the whole deployment. And that's and a brave new world where, like, you've got this magic resource. You're basically which, just saying, deploy the server, and you're done, I guess, yeah. right? I mean, I guess the lone
1: trip up there would be, like, database stuff that happens, right? Yeah, so that's what I was going to get into. <laughs> well, Go ahead.
0: Well, no, just because, like, this is, a, this is an example of a use case that we haven't been considering enough in the past where, like... With the migration API, and specifically with changes in the migration API, which Mm -hmm. you guys get hurt by more than anybody else, right? Because...
2: Uh, we're pretty um, adamant on running SQL where we have to run SQL and not like reaching out to too many features. The only uh, big one, big change, I guess, was the way indexes work changed a little bit, yeah, and that kind of hurt. For like timestamps changing from not and null time, to null, yes.
0: And just and that, but that's the thing; it's the little things like that, right? Yeah. And it's it's fine for most apps because normally it's like you write a migration, you run it on your machine, your other devs run it on their machine, mm. m- presumably within a week or two, and then like if a new dev comes on you run schema rb which maintain which you know is always a a current snapshot but you guys now have a scenario where it's it's actually kind of reasonable if if Mm. they go let's say three three versions forward of discourse and uh the first one added a migration the second one uh changed the version of rails and the third one added another migration right then that you're now in a scenario where it make it's like it's reasonable that a migration would be run against a version of rails of them for what it was written
2: I don't know. Like we, we, control the whole stack, so we can we can take care of that particular problem to a degree. But what I'd do is add an extra migration on top of it to like normalize. Yeah, right. uh, which is what I'd recommend. Uh, the, instead of making the migration subsystem more complicated, a simpler way is just to clean up the data. And you know, if you need to make this super trivial for people, then you could just provide a helper. But sure. just clean up this mess that this used to be uh, not null, now it's null or whatever. So That's
1: interesting because I've definitely seen some talk and it made sense to me around like finding a way to indicate in a migration or in the migration file name I think is one of the considerations. Yeah, that's, that's
0: what, that's what I, we're, we're going on right now. Is like we, what the version
1: of Rails this migration is for?
0: Yeah, and then if, if nothing else, just flat out like printing a warning or like failing unless you add a flag or something like that saying like hey this was written against a different version of rails this might have unexpected behavior um going too much farther than that requires us to basically have parts of our code base maintain every behavior change that we've ever introduced right. to the migration api yeah. and that might potentially but I, mess up refactoring i for, do feel
1: like that warning is just going to become like noise like yeah. you're going to get that every time That's that you upgrade rails right so like now well, I but you don't normally
0: run migrations against different versions of rails developers do Right. No, like you write a migration and then you run it. You un- unless you like also upgraded Rails that same. But I day. also drop my database and
1: remigrate often. I don't. Uh, not nec- yeah, necessarily we, pull from. We schema. always
2: run the full migration. Chain. Really? Yes. Because That's, that's, that's not, recomm- not recommended. Not I know it's
1: not recommended, but I always want to be able to recreate the production state of the database from the migrations if I can.
2: The, yeah, that's what the thing is. That's what we're doing in production. So doing it in development is probably a saner thing. So mm-hmm. and also. Um, Because we use um, SQL, in the past, we had to use SQL for certain features, like, um, for example, full text indexes didn't exist. And filtered indexes didn't exist until they were added. So we were using all of those features, and you'd run an exec to get that. So pulling the schema out and just from the migration definition is practically impossible. Then you have to suck right. it out of the database. But doing that, then developers are developers and will be developers and will muck with the database. And then just checking in a file that is unclean and not easy to generate. Yeah. Right. So just... Ah, yeah, you get to the point where like you're it. battling. Like, I
1: check in one version of Schema RB. Oh, there are no changes. You check it. There are no database yeah. changes. You Somehow you have a different Schema RB, and you're like, I don't know what happened here. Let me check this in. <laughs> and like we're just battling over each other about which version right. yeah, of Schema RB.
2: Yeah, and Schema RB is yeah. easy compared to what structure.sql, oh, which is yeah. the other one. Yeah. We,
1: when we have to switch to structure.sql, we often just ignore it. Yeah. Because like, the diff here is impossible to read. It's not valuable. Let's forget about it.
0: I do think one thing that can help <laughs> prevent us from having to go to structure.sql more often is just if we add... It. Uh, I think, I'm think i thinking about adding a method that's just like execute the SQL and store it in a place so that it gets dumped into schema RB. How? Uh, <laughs> in one of our special Rails tables.
2: So you'd have like exec statements, but how do you chain them in the correct order? Yeah, the order would be interesting. Is... I mean, insert, insert order? order
0: yeah, it'd just be order of insertion to where we're storing them.
2: I don't know if that would work. Because the actual schema itself shows up first. I don't know how you'd you'd have yeah, to know what version directly. i guess
1: you could you could store the version of the migration it's in right yeah. but then like if a table if a migration has a create table and then it has an one of these yeah. special execs yeah Migration might have also been special exec create table. You'd need to, you, need you need to, to I gotcha. yeah, yeah, you, you need to, know to fold every, yeah you need everything.
2: You need to have multiple schema RBS basically, <laughs> and then you run the things between those schema. RBs. I bet we <laughs> it like, yeah. sound so much away. simpler. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I bet it could be. I bet it's possible. Yeah, I mean, you could say you could say like that the it, one of these special execs has to be in a migration on its own, and then therefore you know its version and you know when to like link when to run it in. But but, but what
2: is schema B buying you like? Why do you want that? Um, it's a prettier file than structure.sql. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, but I mean, like, you can annotate your models. Merge conflicts then... are a lot easier. What do you mean, merge conflicts? Like, but, but we are talking, like, why, why, why not just you ignore it? all? Why not just run all of the migrations? Like, what is it buying you to have that one file with all of the schema? It's a
1: little bit faster.
2: Well, That's
0: and, about it. And, and, and it insulates you better from when we do change the migration DSL. Like when we change the behavior, because the migra- the behavior of those methods
2: provided all of the old migra- migrations have right. ran. Ra- right, which you, they haven't right. if your code is deployed right. in everywhere in the right. world. Right, but that, that's what I'm saying yeah. is like
0: is like that's why we don't consider because yeah. the normal uh, models the base camp right you have you have yeah. development and you have one production instance or maybe some staging servers but yes. they get run immediately.
1: Right. And I think David's point is, like, you don't run those migrations again. But I am of the camp. Of that. Oh, like, yeah. I'm constantly running the migrations again. So it's, it's common for me when Rails migrations change to go through and be like, I've got to update all these migrations. Like, I edit old migrations because I have yeah, to get them I to Yeah,
2: sometimes run. Uh, we try to avoid it. Like, we <laughs> never reach into models, for example. In right, right. We don't do any of that. Right. So because that, that model helps. name might be gone at that yeah. point. That's the other cool. thing that I've been toying with is naming indexes because and that rails is keeps changing how they're going to name them <laughs> yeah and like i want to have a consistent database schema and that becomes first of all it's a nightmare for rails if they change the rules to ever figure out how to like fix them in a backwards compatible way yeah. so i'm kind of thinking oh, yeah, maybe i should just name my indexes and like forget about this problem like how much extra work is that adding
1: I think at one point w- during one version, I had like Rails when you renamed a column, didn't rename the indexes. Yeah, there and then were the next like version that. they changed that, yeah. and then like I had migrations that were like in the meantime, I was like, oh, I'm bugged by these these index names being wrong. So <laughs> well, I wrote and then it's Also, if you ever that, try and remove the index, we yeah. can't find it. Right. <laughs> so, <it's> like, <laughs> so that was a disaster, but. But these things are pain points for, like, the first few months after migration, and everybody kind of forgets about
2: it, mm. and then they come back again. Well,
0: like. But that's it's more like, so you go in, and you guys yeah. think about this. Most people don't, and it's just yeah. painful.
2: But that's, uh, isn't that, like, to a degree, any API that is encouraging huge amounts of magic is going to have that yes. problem at some point?
0: I agree with that statement. Do you think migrations are magic? I think parts of it are magic.
1: The, the schema RB part might be magic. Like, the dumping uh, is probably magic. Add I don't index,
2: think... Add index is magic. Yeah. When do you ever do create index without giving it a name when you're writing in SQL directly? Oh, you don't. Right. I okay, mean, so then... <laughs> so <laughs> it's going why, to infer the name, right? Why did, the, yeah, but why did they come up with that? Why didn't they allow for unnamed create indexes in SQL? Like, and and if you think back, then you think that like that name is actually very important. Right. Because that is something that you'll use for diagnostics. If you're analyzing your actual um, execution plan, right. then you'll get that name there, and like right. it, th- there's use for it. So but it does do a good job at giving a pretty a, a good name. I feel like, like yeah, at least it's it, consistent. Like it gives it all of the names of the columns, right? Right, and it That's also, but it idea. also like
1: it also tells you like it's like named in a consistent fashion. Right? Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, when I've worked on raw SQL, where we do raw SQL migrations, right? Yeah. Like, some people name their things IDX underscore. IDX awesome. Right. And, like, like, (laughs) they're like, I should see this in in query plan, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And, like, somehow that sticks around. You're like, this, uh, okay. That doesn't tell me anything. But, yeah, that has that nicety to it. But, yeah, you're probably right that maybe there's a reason they didn't allow for that in regular ANSI SQL.
0: And I'm not saying, like, it's. There are certainly worse cases of magic, but if you do like T belongs to whatever polymorphic true index true foreign key true like
2: yeah oh that is the amount- enormous
1: amounts of magic yeah, yeah the polymorphic thing yeah. right
0: now it's at least explicit but yeah I wouldn't mind having to create the two columns I mean of course mm-hmm. I can just create the two columns specifically but th- that's that's kind of why I've I've been and and I I think. Ultimately, I'm going to lose this in the long run, but I'm I'm against the idea of ever changing the behavior of these methods. And when we do need to add new behavior, we add new options. And we can yeah. change the generators. If we want timestamps to be null, false by default, we should change the generators to generate null, false by default. Yeah. If for no other reason than adding, you know, just having it be explicit.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: I once worked on a system where, like, they didn't allow Rails migrations. You had to run migrations in this thing that they invented, which was... Postgres migrations, basically, yeah. but it was fine. It was exactly like yeah. Rails migrations, and you just wrote raw SQL, yeah. and it was fine. And it solved the problem where, like, if you do get in a situation where you need to roll back, you have to remember to roll back, then roll back, your, like, do DB rollback, then mm-hmm. roll back your code, because you roll back the code, you cannot roll back the database because that <laughs> migration no longer exists. Yeah. Like, so it solved that problem by separating the two systems, and writing raw SQL wasn't, wasn't bad. Like, I, I like this. You like this? Is that what you said? Yes. I mean, I mean the, the one, one of the
0: nice things that our, our API does do, though, is it's able to infer how to roll back most actions.
2: Yeah, when the change stuff came in, that was pretty cool. Yeah. It lets you write less. It's a question of, you know, how much you don't want to repeat yourself, right? Right. And, and, and we it, so it Yeah, and how far are we willing to go in the don't repeat yourself thing? Like, at the end, it'll just be do, do magic. Right. And I think some of the early part of, of migrations was like, look, you can write
1: it in this way, and you don't have to worry about how you write it in MySQL and how you mm-hmm. write it in Postgres. But I think people are finding over years that like, that doesn't matter yeah, that much. Yeah, like, I don't, I don't know if there's <laughs> this
2: mythical person that needs to run their app on both MySQL and Postgres that exists somewhere. But, I've, like, done like, one I've, con- con- I've done one them.
1: conversion from MySQL to Postgres. It and It was, used to be it common, it still though, had to, to be. do
0: SQLite in development.
1: Yeah, that's true. It did, but that was a bad idea. It was a really so, like, bad idea. <laughs> terrible idea. But it so, used to be common. Made <laughs> possible made possible by the migrations, right? So like if the migrations yeah. didn't exist, people wouldn't have done that bad idea. But yeah, yeah, no,
0: I mean like you don't actually change your database. I am opposed to the idea that active record is actually attempting I mean, it, may have used, it may have been in the past, but the idea that it, it is or should be attempting to abstract you from the database to the point where you can actually switch vendors yeah. is nonsense. And if you're not doing anything with your database specific to that database, you're not doing anything interesting with your database, and you probably should be.
1: Well, or it could also just mean if you're not doing anything particularly interesting, the raw SQL you were going to write is also equally (laughs) compatible. Like, maybe you have a couple small tweaks to syntax here and there, which I'm not
2: remembering right now, but, like, not a big deal at all. Yeah, I mean,
0: they all support ANSI, (laughs) (laughs) okay-ish.
2: Plus, minus. No, in, in Postgres, you tend to use a lot of uh, Postgres-ish issue, uh, features just because, you know, ah oh, well, they added JSON. Let's yeah. start Yeah, once you get into JSON. that territory. Right? Oh, yeah. let's start doing that. And it's a lot of very, very cool features that they have that are handy. Like, if you don't know that you're using a database and you just abstract it away, it's like you're just not tapping into all of this. Mm-hmm. And it can help you a lot in certain cases. Uh, and I find where I find SQL most powerful and needed, and something that we all kind of need to follow is in migrations when you have to migrate data, mm-hmm. because often, like, and I've had a few of these, like you make this structure change, but you need to now transform this huge amount of data from this spot to that spot and move it around and meld it and whatnot, and that's what SQL is like phenomenal at, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, uh, like you're adding a unique index, right? And now uh, somehow you've got non-unique values in that table. How are you going to deal with that, mm-hmm. right? And the solution is you write a SQL statement and probably a SQL statement that's very, very Postgres specific to be able to do that because the way of doing these deletes with the joins and, yep. and whatnot is very, very uh, Postgres specific to the syntax because a lot of that isn't properly defined. Right.
0: Did you read the development blog from Elo at all? No. So they had some very interesting um, problems where uh, the way they set up their activity feed, uh, it, basically they, they made, made this decision early on to make sharding later easier, where instead of actually going to a table that has the stream, when you, when you perform an action, it instead creates a record for every person that is following you. And then they have their version of MySpace Tom. So every single user follows the system bot or whatever, and they announce downtime or whatever. And that actually, the ability to send out just an announcement from this uh, account yeah. drove a lot of their scaling problems. Um, <laughs> and, they, and, and one of the issues they had was just a column that really should have been indexed wasn't. Yes. But then the volume of data was so fast, the index would never complete
2: yeah, that's really hard. Uh, back at Stack Overflow, we had that, those problems as well of creating an index, and there were all sorts of weird tricks that we'd do, like uh, pull the table, rename it, then make the change on that rename table, and then push it back in and hold off activity. Like There, there were all sorts of insane kind of workarounds, but when you've got enormous amounts of load, like, yeah. it becomes very hard to do some well, of these things.
0: And eventually you just need to stop new data coming in, right? Yeah. And it, may not, it might not necessarily mean actual site downtime but certainly like, like, you, like you just yeah. said like stop certain forms of activity while the index builds well move
2: it yeah I mean ideally like you could move it to read only mode somehow and right. then uh, do the change mm-hmm. on right. a different table and then bring it back I think you're allowed to have read only connections in Postgres I didn't know it's that. yeah. cool so you could potentially you could certainly them. have a user that's read only right, yeah definitely do that yeah uh, should we wrap up yeah you got anything else
1: anything you want to plug Ah uh, yeah, definitely. Go stuff. Well,
2: let's uh, plug uh, MessageBus because that needs some plugging. Yes. Okay. So, um, tell us about it. <laughs> so we've all heard about Action Cable that is going to be shipping in Rails five.
0: Yeah, I'm going to subscribe to it and get TNT, the Action Channel. Awesome.
2: <laughs> so MessageBus is the uh, a, a Ruby gem that we use at uh, Discourse that gives us long polling support, and it's built into Rails. You don't carry any extra dependencies of services so it just hooks into your rails app as middleware and that means that you know you you don't need to worry about uh, any complicated installation things the dependencies it adds is redis which most of us do have and it uses event machine at the moment but i do plan to allow this to use celluloid and other things and uh, what that does, I guess in a nutshell, is allows you to kind of broadcast a message from your servers and make sure that all the clients get that whenever they want it. And the features that it have that make it particularly interesting is that it's got this catch-up feature. So if you've subscribed to a channel and then you close your laptop and then you open it up a day later, uh, the actual internals will figure out how to catch up on all of the messages that you missed during that window. And that is very handy when you're kind of streaming information to the client and you want to make sure that it got all of that information and you don't want to have to force it to like do full refreshes to figure out what happened or Mm -hmm. diff the entire page and and so on. So you said this is long polling. Is there a reason that that's preferable to WebSockets? Well, initially we did try WebSockets and uh, we were having all sorts of issues around HTTP with WebSockets. Uh, The Thing is, there are just so many different flavors of WebSockets. At least there were two years ago. All of these draft after draft. This is how you do the frame. The eight different framing protocols and and so on. So different browsers behaved a little bit differently. But eventually we accepted that you know certain people just can't use WebSockets and they're going to have to upgrade to a, a, a new browser. But the thing that kind of made me stop using it was that even on the most modern browsers, it stopped working under HTTP. Uh, and that was when you're running via a proxy. A lot of proxies will completely destroy WebSocket traffic. And in a way that is very, very hard to understand what is going on because you'll connect and the proxy will tell you that you connected and you'll send messages but nothing's coming through the channel. And at that point, it was like, no, I, I was in a situation where I couldn't debug this. There was no way of debugging these things in production. I just found out that my phone carrier does this, and like all sorts of. Of course, every airplane trip will do this, and I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't need this complexity. And then I thought, I took a step back and I thought, you know, what really is this WebSocket stuff buying me? Well, it's a buzzword. <laughs> And the long polling itself, you know, you get one get request every 30 seconds to a minute, depending what you define. And so, so it's pretty much a very similar amount of data is moving around. It's just using, you know, traditional HTTP one supported uh, mechanisms to do. And it falls back beautifully as well, right? So if long polling doesn't work, polling works fine, right? Because... <laughs> Uh, as I was saying, the protocol is reliable, so it can catch up at any point in time. And because of that concept that it can catch up at any point in time, you can do polling, right? Because if you missed a message between polls, you'll just catch up at the next poll. So is,
1: is this, would this be like a solution for like when I'm using Trello and I close my laptop and I come back and I open it back up? when i'm using it there's like a thing up on the top right that's like you need to reload you've been
2: disconnected for too long ah uh, no like, yeah that doesn't happen at discourse okay so like this because of this type of thing right you because of this that's right okay Interesting, and uh, and I think that that technology is very very interesting, and it's easy to layer WebSockets on top. But the thing that I'm reluctant to do is like, what what is it buying me? What am I going to gain out of it? I'm going to get pain because I'm going to get buzzword <laughs> compliant. Right. Like nobody has gone and said, look, look at these numbers, look how much faster WebSockets are. Right? Nobody's gone and done that work, and that's kind of.
1: I guess would it be would it, it's performance overhead possibly? Right? Yeah, I was going to say like, if polling scale, if You have a maybe. lot of polling
2: clients, <laughs> and we're all going to be Google scale. Yeah, we all course. like to we are. We're all going to be rich and we're all going to be Google scale. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> but at some point, like if you're going to be Google scale, I'm not sure if these solutions even fit you. Like you're going to be stuck writing your own things. Well, uh, GitHub, for example. Like, Charlie ended up having to write their own little C-based web socket thingy, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, if you're going to get, like, super high scale, then that's it. But, I mean, did somebody come up and say, look at these benchmarks, look how much faster it's going to be, look how much better it's going to be? And it's not not faster, it's not better. The code that's the actual code, the amount of code that you need to make this work is enormous. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like, you can say, ah, no, that's no problem. There are these abstractions I can use. And we have Action cable. For me. So, yeah. <laughs> or Action Cable says, ah, that's not a problem. Faye WebSockets does all of this for me. But yeah. still, at the bottom, there is a lot of code to drive this and a lot of stuff that needs to be maintained. And a lot of stuff going forward, like HTTP2 is going to come. Mm-hmm. And you're going to need to have to add all of those uh, new protocols in there as well. Yeah. So, so what you're saying I'm is complex sure. dependencies are bad. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're great, but you have to show that they're actually giving you some gain, right? And that's that's the frustrating thing. Has anybody gone and benchmarked this and told us, look, you know, we're using this because it's going to be 50% faster or uh, 80% less network traffic? And... Releasing it without a fallback to me sounds crazy, right? Um, At Discourse, uh, we can actually cool down on the amount of time that we do the polling. So if you move your browser to the background, we detect that the browser is no longer in the foreground. Mm -hmm. And we tell the message bus, look chill out like this yep. is all automatic you just install the gem and you get this right but it just says yeah cool down only notify it once a minute and you haven't done that for a while only notify every five minutes now right mm-hmm. so you can just cool down on your network traffic a lot with that whereas with web sockets you're stuck having the web socket open and running keeper lives regularly just in case your um, channel decides to hang because And it's funny, because there are two levels of Keepalives, right? You've got TCP Keepalives that are already running in the background, and then you've put another Keepalive on top of that to keep that alive. Sure, right? If this is going to make it like 10 times faster and 10 times more scalable, then I'd be much more comfortable, but I'm not seeing any numbers that prove this except that we want to be buzzword compliant and we want to push the web forward and like <laughs> <laughs>
1: so you're, you're putting message buses like an alternative as something that's like usable today doesn't usable have these today, problems.
2: been working in production right. now for two years right and uh is actively developed
1: and ended up being the way because of ways that you had pain with WebSockets. sockets exactly so,
2: yeah. Interesting. all right cool anything else <laughs> um, so yeah, I already plugged Rack Mini Profile. Our only yep. last gem that I'd like to plug is Logster, which is definitely worth.
1: I haven't heard that one. Sounds... Um,
2: so if you go to logster.info, you can put it in the show notes. Yep, and that's basically a web UI to look at your logs in both development and production. So in um, development, uh, it. Uh, has ev- every log message and with an attached stack trace next to the log message so you can see where that stream was generated. In production, it goes warning and up and it'll give you um, a row per warning that you get. Cool. And for me, I find it incredibly handy that like now if I go to any discourse instance in the world and I'm an admin, I can go to logs and see Wait, where what are my logs, deprecations or whatever what, or, I or mean, what errors yeah, what errors are I get yeah.
1: Cool thanks sam this
2: was That's great a pleasure awesome <laughs> had a great time thanks guys uh, we
1: wrap up yeah let's wrap up uh, show notes for this episode can be found at bike shed.fm slash 17 thanks again to our guest sam saffron as always ratings and reviews on itunes are much appreciated uh, if you want to get in touch with us for any reason feedback on this episode or any other you can tweet us at underscore bike shed email us at hosts at bike shed.fm or leave feedback on the website thanks for listening to the bike shed and we'll see you next time